Our study this morning is in the book of John, chapter 9. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. I was interested after our study last week in talking about technology and the changes in the world, things like that, to open the paper on Friday and see the headline, Google turns phones into wallets. The article reads, ready to pay for everything via your smartphone. Google announced Google offers. I'm not plugging Google, by the way. For mobile discounts, you can redeem by tapping your phone at participating merchants or showing the barcode as you check out. Vice President of Commerce said, your phone will be your wallet. Just tap, pay, and save, because we're all about saving, right? Vice President of Payments said, this is just the beginning. Consumers will be able to store credit cards, loyalty cards, gift cards, and mobile offers on their phones. It's exactly what we talked about last week. You know, the Lord, again, kind of impressed upon my heart something different than I planned to talk about this morning. So he led us to John chapter 9. I want to talk this morning about a spiritual principle that we all know in theory, but we sometimes struggle to accept in our lives, let alone find strength that it can be one of the benefits of knowing and living for the Lord. See, how we live life is all based on our personal perspective. Let me say that again just because we need to get into this now. How we live life is all based on our personal perspective. And as believers, that perspective is ultimately controlled by the depth and maturity of our faith. Now, for someone that doesn't know Christ, for someone that doesn't trust Christ, everything is dictated by self what we feel, what we want, what goals we have, what's important to obtain, what society tells us is, is valuable. So what is important becomes what we can get now and what will fulfill me more than anything else. But for a believer, it's different. For a believer, there is a, a different way of thinking. And the disciple of Christ does not accept and does not live by a self-driven view. Instead, that's replaced by personal humility that comes out of a willing and constant yieldedness to God's Spirit first and foremost. That's why faith is the measuring stick of our maturity. Faith is always going to be the most important thing because faith is full, unwavering confidence in God's care and God's provision. And it's the, the willing decision, the the intentional decision to rely on him instead of on ourselves. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, there's, there's no way to interpret that verse or to read that verse as anything other than what it says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it's easy for us when we hear that to conclude, how does the Lord feel about my trust? How does the Lord view my dependence on him? especially because I have accepted and, and live for the fact that he has redeemed me and that he's redeemed you from sin. So as somebody that has been redeemed, as somebody that's been changed, as somebody that has a new nature, his expectation is going to be that now you will walk by faith and not by sight. And while that's challenging... And it's easier said than done. And while every day that becomes something that we have to wrestle with, what Jesus is saying is that the standard for spiritual maturity 
is how common it is for us to see everything that happens through the lens of trusting God implicitly. The depth of our maturity of faith, for us to say, I'm a mature disciple of Jesus Christ, everything that happens to us has to be viewed through the filter of, and no matter what happens, I'm going to trust the Lord. Whether good happens, whether bad happens, whether he takes away or whether he gives, blessed be the name of the Lord, I will trust him, I will not doubt him, I will not second guess him, it will all be a complete dependence on him. Now, the only other alternative to that is worry and fear. And worry and fear are code words for doubt and refusal to trust. Now, you may think that's too harsh, but when we come to the story in John chapter 9, we see that it's not. Because this passage is really not ultimately about the physical healing of the blind man. This passage is about the darkness of self and the failure to put faith in the Lord. And the way John records this conversation, interestingly, John's not usually the detail guy, Luke is, but John, for some reason, feels led by the Spirit and is, and is motivated by the Spirit to spend a whole chapter on this one story. And he goes into great detail, even that's not kind of his, his usual mode. And as we look at it, it's, it's funny and sad at the same time. Because it's, it's shocking almost, I, I think that word's appropriate, it's shocking to see how much those that should have known better didn't get it. And it's shocking to see how what was so obvious goes right past them. Now, remember, the people that we're going to talk about are people that not only should have known better, but they were educated and studying all the time. And to go a step beyond that, they were people that looked down on others and saw themselves as more intellectual, more educated, more intuitive than other people because of all the time they spent studying. And they were just brimming with pride. Their, their hubris at this point was, was over the limit because they had literally decided, the Pharisees, that they were better than everybody else. Jesus said, look at how they walk around. They dress in their long flowing robes and they've got their phylacteries, which is a little box that sat either on their forehead or on their arm. You can go to Jerusalem today and still see them walking around. And he said, they walk around and they make a great show of themselves. And they're saying, look at me, I'm a Pharisee and, and everybody knows what I do. And, and look, I'm just wonderful. They literally thought in their hearts every morning, I'm better than everybody else. And what's ironic is, spiritually, they can't see the forest for the trees. Spiritually, they don't get how the Lord works. They don't understand how much they failed to trust God. Now, let's take this text. We've got a lot to read this morning, and I know time is short, and I am very still sick, so I'm going to try to be as quick as I can. Let's start chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
When he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to the man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar went saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. I am me. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now there's no question that many of the unhappy and sad and difficult things that happen to us in our lives happened as a direct result of either our sin or the sin nature that exists in all creation. There's no question that there's a direct correlation between disobedience to the Lord and difficulty in life. Man's rebellion in the Garden of Eden set that in motion. We know that instantly the world changed. Instantly his relationship with God changed. And there was an unmistakable connection there between sin and pain and sin and consequences. So when the disciples see this blind man, and they walk by him in Jerusalem, they conclude that he must have done something wrong. They say, Lord, you know, what, what happened with this guy? Okay, he's blind. What, was the sin his parents, or was there some sin in his own life? They assume that connection. But Jesus changes the conversation, and he says, let me teach you that there are times that I work where I allow difficulty in your life that is not a direct consequence of sin. There are times when I use that as a way to show you who I am and show you what I do without you being able to misinterpret it, misconstrue that in any way other than that. Now, how many of you know that there are times in our lives where the hand of God was unmistakable on us? Where, where you know something was happening that was designed to do nothing other than prove that he was God and that he's Lord. It may have been one of the greatest times in your life, or it may have been one of the worst times in your life, but you knew. Now we know that our faith is becoming mature when we go through those difficult situations and we still praise him. Think about that for a second. We know that our faith is becoming mature when we go through those difficult situations and our first response is to praise Him. Instead of falling back into anxiety and fear or worse, letting bitterness take hold and letting resentment take hold. Listen, faith understands, accepts, and rejoices in the fact that the Lord does things to show Himself to be Lord even if there's a cost to us in the short term. I really want that to settle into your heart. Faith says, God's doing this. God's allowed to be Lord. I will praise him anyway. And even if there is a cost to me, even if I have to deal with difficulty or suffer so that he will be magnified, then so be it. God be praised. I will still trust him. But that's difficult for us. Now, if you've ever walked by faith, and if you do walk by faith, and I pray you do, 
you know that that's true. A job that you lost that opened up an opportunity that you never expected. A relationship that soured that allowed you to foster a more edifying relationship. A health crisis that brought you to your knees and caused you to really learn how to trust the Lord. A child that wandered away from the Lord only to repent and now to be used in a powerful way. Paul talks about this principle in Philippians 3 when he says, My flesh is nothing. Nothing that happens to me, nothing that's for me, is, is worthwhile. Whatever gain that I had, I had to count as loss for Christ so that I will become more like Christ. Because when you lose self, you gain Christ. When you lose self, you learn what it is to have the heart and mind of Christ. You learn what it is to be conformed to Him, which is the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal this week is not to make money. It's not to have a great marriage. It's not to raise your kids the right way. Those are all important things. It's not to go see a brewer's game. It's not to pray that it will get warm sometime soon. It is not all of that. The ultimate goal of your life as a disciple of Christ this week is to be conformed to Christ. There is no other thing that is more important than to be like Christ. So we have to get used to the fact that ordinary losses in life are designed to have an extraordinary purpose, to know the authority and the sovereignty and the power of the Lord as well as his sufficiency of care. Now look back at the text because we're going to see this explained. This man had been born blind. And apparently he had been born blind for the primary purpose that the Lord would publicly heal him. He had been born blind for the purpose that today we would study his life. That today we would understand the transformative work of God in his life and that we would again have validated in our hearts, even if you've been saved 30, 40, 50 years, that today we would have validated in our hearts that God is Savior and Lord. Now, interestingly, when you look at verse 4, I want you to see how Jesus lays the responsibility of showing those truths on us. He kind of gives us, in verse 4, a little bit of a minor great commission. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for night is coming when no one will work. Now, notice that possessive pronoun at the start of verse 4. And if you write your Bible, underline it or circle it or do something. I looked it up to make sure that the translation of the New American Standard was right, and it is. The word is we. Christ is including himself as our co-laborer. He says to you and me, hey, we got some work to do. Now, you wouldn't think the Son of God would say, I'll be partnering with you in this. I'll be right alongside you. I'll be empowering you. I'll be strengthening you. I'll be enabling you. But he does. Christ says to us as disciples, we have work to do. And while the day is still light, speaking metaphorically here of, of the history of mankind and the time where there is an opportunity for salvation, while the day is still light, you and I labor together for the opportunity of bringing people to know me. That's powerful. Christ is saying, I will enable you. I will help you. 
I will be with you. We know the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Christ, indwells us and strengthens us and gives us the power to do that. And the job is very, very simple. Look at the text. He says, do the work of the Lord. Your job this week, whether you're at work, whether you're raising kids, whether you're traveling, whether you're meeting with people, whatever you're doing, your job this week is to do the work of the Lord. Your job this week is to honor the Lord in everything you do. And that is a wonderful privilege. When we're serving him, it is, it is, everything else seems unimportant. When you're living for the Lord, you're serving the Lord, you say, I can't believe that I get the privilege as a sinner saved by grace to spread the gospel. Then to teach people the truth of his word and to see lives change from darkness to light and to edify and to encourage other believers and to build them up in their faith so they'll stand firm and to pray with them and see their prayers answered and to again be reminded of how good the Lord is. This is the work of the Lord. In two weeks, we have an amazing opportunity to do the work of the Lord. I mean, to be focused in on the fact that there could be, I don't know, 80, 100, 150, 200, I got no idea. In planning this, we can't even get you within 50 of how many kids will show up. I have no idea. But what if 100 show up? What if 200 show up? What if people see that banner every day and they drive by and they say, hey, I think I'll try that out. It's right here in my neighborhood. What, what if 300 kids show up? I, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying this is the work of the Lord. I'm a little scared. <laughs> what is God calling us to do? Do the work of the Lord. And notice what he says, the second part of the phrase. Do the work of the Lord while you can. While it's still light. Last week we studied some of the implications of what's going on in our society and the fact that dusk really is settling on history. And that we need to have a greater sense of urgency not only because there's work to be done, but because there's an increased push against biblical Christianity. I had dinner with Pastor Toledo Wednesday night down in Chicago, and he said, Mayor Emanuel now is taking aim at nonprofit churches. He wants to remove nonprofit status for churches in the city of Chicago. And I thought, that has nothing to do with more revenue for the city of Chicago, because they're just going to waste it anyway. That has everything to do with opposition against churches that fear the Lord. And it's just another indication of what lies ahead and the fact that the light is fading on our culture. But listen, the light of the world still cuts through the darkness, right? It can be foggy and dark and getting depressing. But he says, hey, time short. You and I have a job, the work of the Lord. Hurry up. Let's get busy. Let's be fervent and passionate and bold about it. Look at what I'm doing. Now I'm empowering you. Let's get about the work of the Lord. That's the message, really, when you look at verses 6 and 7. So once Jesus puts the mud on the blind man's eyes, he sends him to the pole of Siloam. Why do we care? Why does John include that detail? Well, he tells us why he includes that detail. It's no coincidence. Jesus could have healed him right away, right? He could have said, boom, there, you're healed, no problem. Why does he go to the effort of spitting, making clay, putting on the guy's eyes, 
And then said, find your way to Siloam, and when you're there, wash. Well, John tells us in verse, I can't read because I'm old, in verse 7, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. That's what we're called to do when we see, okay, speaking spiritually here, when we see, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say sit and soak. He doesn't say relax and kick back for me to, to wait for me to come. He doesn't say, well, just do whatever you want because you're covered by grace and, and you can live our right. What does Jesus say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize. When we see, we are sent. The blind man is sent to the pool of sent before he knows enough to be sent. But once he sees, once his heart is changed, his witness is going to be powerful because he's going to say, and he does through the rest of this chapter, look at what God's done for me. People are like, ah, you're not the same person. No, I am. Trust me. I can see now. Ah, come on. You're, you're lying. What really happened? What did Jesus do? We'll look at that in a second. No, I'm not kidding. He put mud on my eyes. I washed at Siloam. And, and now I can see. Every redeemed person is a walking billboard. Every redeemed person has the opportunity to say, look at what's happened to me. Not to draw attention, but to say, give glory to the Lord. Not one conversion in this room is more spectacular than the other. I don't care how you live. I don't care how bad your life was or how good your life was. We're not going to compare conversions. Every single conversion is a miracle. I grew up in a Christian home, never really did anything that I'd be embarrassed by, never rebelled. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you my witness is different than yours. But the fact that I got saved is just as miraculous as the fact that you got saved. It's all by the grace of God. And it's all because God cares. People passed by this guy every day. Pretty soon, they started to ignore him. Ah, it's the blind beggar. Let's, let's be real quiet. He can't tell we're here. Or it had become an annoyance to them. Oh, please help me. Alms to the poor. Oh, brother. No, not today. I love that phrase in verse 1. It says, as Jesus walked by him, he saw him. Don't, don't glide past that little verb because it's so important. Everybody saw him. But only the Lord looked at him. Everybody, everybody knew who this guy was. He's sitting right there. He's blind. Everybody knows him. But it says Jesus walked by and he saw him. It's like when Jesus gets out of the boat and he sees the huge crowds. And it says he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. God's compassion is greatest when our need is greatest. He never ignores us. He never looks aside. He never gets disgusted. Even the vilest offender against him, God never gets disgusted. He still has compassion. He still has grace. He still has mercy. He's still patient. He never fails to offer to help and heal and restore. The Bible says he comes near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't you think this guy was crushed in spirit? From birth, he couldn't see. He clearly has no friends. His parents are kind of shaky. I think somehow there's been a disconnect. They've written him off. They've kind of said, he's worthless. He's no good to us. He's going to be dependent on us all our life. 
So we're just let it beg. What parents would let their child beg? The parents are detached. There are no friends. There's nobody sitting with them each day saying, hey, would you please help my friend? He can't see. I'd love it if you could give something. Making eye contact with people. Please help us. There's nobody there. He's alone. But Jesus comes along. And Jesus sees him. And he heals him. Now, once the neighbors see that the man isn't blind anymore, even some of them don't think it's really him. Look back at the text for a minute. And he keeps having to say, it's me, it's me. But they decide that the Pharisees need to get involved because we all know that the Pharisees were bastions of spiritual discernment, right? That will be the, that that will help us. Let's get the Pharisees. We see here what happens in verses 13 to 34. Let's look at the text. the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what did you say about him since you opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say? <laughs> I love that. So, so arrogant and, and kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just talking down to him. Uh, is this your son who you say was born blind? Don't you think they would have known that? Then how does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but now he sees. How? We don't know. And who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, but the Jews had direct, already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Verse 24. So the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Put a little bite when you read that, okay? Don't, I told you already, and you did not. No, it's not, it's not like that. A little little venting going on now, a little hostility. Hey, I told you already, you didn't want to listen. That better, right? Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him, said, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God's spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, Here's an amazing thing, that you did not know where he's from, that's a dig, and yet he opened my eyes. Boy, if that verse doesn't tell us everything. Hey, hey, here's what's shocking. You guys don't even know how he did it. But I'm telling you, I can see. 
We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Notice how they answer. Not with, oh, repentance. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us? And they put him out. I mean, you really got to read that text with some emotion. This is not a calm exchange. This is not polite in any way. The Pharisees are digging in their heels. They're angry. They're hostile. They're resentful. And they're going to say whatever they can say to get themselves off the hook. And the man responds with just as much passion. God bless him. He just saw for the first time. And he's saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, isn't it interesting that the Pharisees immediately focus on what is not pertinent? That they focus on what deflects the truth. You ever been around somebody like this? Maybe you're like this. That when the discussion gets uncomfortable or exposes a flaw in some way, you change the subject and turn it back to the other person, even with some criticism, so you don't have to face the truth. The Bible says that spiritually, that's what a Pharisee does. They're in oblivious denial about their sin, and response, they become critical of other people so that it won't have attention on them. Jesus says, you are blind guides. You are unaware of your own sin, or maybe you're just very aware of it, and you don't want to deal with it. When we aren't willing to be confronted by the Lord for our lack of trust, let alone repent of it, the Lord will deal with us very directly. The Pharisees were smug. They were arrogant. They instantly, notice back in the text, they instantly dismiss Jesus in verse 16 because he's not keeping the Sabbath. What they fail to realize is that he created the Sabbath, he created the law about the Sabbath, and he can do whatever he wants with the Sabbath. But their decision about him is quick and it's final. This man cannot be of God. Not, hey, he might be a false prophet. They instantly dismiss him. And other people come along and say, well, all right, well, that sounds good, but how can somebody who is a sinner heal a blind person? There's no answer for that. And they even ask the man, what happened? And he says, I don't know, but, but I can see, I have no doubt, but, but they don't respond to that. The evidence is remarkably clear, and the blind man himself says, I can see, but they continue to doubt. Now, sometimes this happens to us. We get stubborn, and we get rebellious in our thinking, and we dig our heels in, and we say, I'm not going to believe, even though I know God's doing it. That is not a place where we want to stay for more than a couple seconds. And we certainly do not want to become dogmatic about our doubt. Jesus did this so he would be glorified. Jesus did this, but the Pharisees would not yield their hearts. In verse 18, they don't believe the man's conclusion, nor do they believe that he had been blind, so they get his parents 
to verify it. Like, you say that he's been blind all his life. Why would we make that up? And this is where the story gets very, very interesting. And where we start to see how the text teaches and challenges us. The parents are intimidated. We see that right there in the middle. Pharisees had said, if you say that he's the Christ, we're going to ban you. So, so wisely they say, he's our son. He can answer for himself. What we do know is he used to be blind and now he can see. But if you really want proof, just ask him. So they call him a second time. And in verse 24, they're very dismissive about the power and authority of Christ. And they essentially say, you need to deny Christ. But, but, but he won't do that. He won't deny Christ. And they keep questioning him and doubting his word and trying to undermine his story. And he keeps saying, I'm telling you, I know what's happened. And they keep saying, no, it couldn't be really that way. Tell us again what really happened. Well, it happened this way. I'm telling you, put the clay on my eyes and I can see. But, but really, what happened? He doesn't back down. And in fact, he says something that is so bold and so direct that it can't help but rock the Pharisees back on their heels and challenge their arrogant and dismissive faithlessness here that, that is so obvious. Look at it. It's a beautiful verse. It's in verse 25. He says, I don't know who he is, but I can tell you this. I was blind, and now I see. What a great response to someone that says, can you tell me why you believe the way you do? What a great response to someone who says, why do you go to that weird church? Why do you study your Bible? Why do you not do the things that you used to do when I knew you? You were a lot more fun back then. Why, why do you... Listen, come on now. Jesus died, the Son of God died and rose again. That's what you're putting your confidence in for eternity? Really? That, that, you're telling me that that's what I should believe? When somebody says that, listen, we're not supposed to come back with arrogance. We're not supposed to come back combatively. The only thing we need to say is, let me tell you what happened. I was spiritually blind, and now I see. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why God would do it. He tells me he loves me. I can't fathom that kind of love because nobody's ever loved me like that before. But I will tell you, there's difference. Before... I didn't get it. I couldn't see. I was lost. I didn't understand the Bible. I was trying to do it myself. I thought good works would be enough. And it got me nowhere. I was miserable. And let me tell you, I met Christ. And now it's as clear as a bell. And I understand it. And my life is different. And I'm at peace. And there's only one person that could have done that. It's Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about him? Because that's what he's doing here. The conclusiveness of salvation is the evidence of our lives. It's another reason, in a long line of reasons, why our lives should look dramatically different from the world. It's why denying ourselves the things that the world values and sin pushes is so necessary. Because how can we point at our lives and say, look at how I can see now if we're not living any differently from those who can't see? 
We're not talking legalism. We're not talking guilt. We're not saying, well, we do it to be bragged and noticed. We have to be able to say, I'm not living like a blind person anymore. I'm not bumping into the walls anymore. I'm not trying to figure out which way is best. Christ changed it all. And I'm no longer surviving. I'm thriving. I'm no longer, oh, I don't know. And how am I going to make it? And what's the answer? And I have no solution. It's no longer that. Because Christ has touched our eyes. And now we can see. But look back at the text. The Pharisees still don't get it. It's not that they don't understand. It's that they don't want to get it. So they do the old trick. I don't really understand what you said. Well, I've already told you twice. Well, could you humor us and tell us a third time what really happened? Listen, unbelief and lack of trust always has excuses. But it's still unbelief. We didn't quite get the picture. Could you explain it one more time? We didn't get enough detail from you. Unbelief is unbelief. And we can nuance it and explain it away like, oh, you just don't understand the situation and it was so difficult to trust and God asked something of me that I just couldn't handle and the circumstances were such in, in a way no one understands how different it was for me. Listen, I get that. I get that there are situations that some of us have gone through that are far beyond that I've ever experienced. But I'm telling you this morning, unbelief is unbelief. Look what the Pharisees ask in verse 26. What did he do for you? How did he open his eyes like they didn't know? And the man's response is priceless. I've already told you three times. Now, Pharisees, here's the problem. And, and, and this is shocking how firm he is in talking to the religious leaders of the day. He says, here's the problem. You don't want to listen. <laughs> that dug in a little bit, right? He stands right up to them. Says, it's not that you don't get it. It's not that I haven't explained it well. It's that you simply don't want to listen. See, he even understands that it's not a lack of information. It's a lack of willingness. And then he says, why do you want me to tell you again? Are you guys wanting to become his disciples too? Now, he's not really curious at this point. He's not naive. He understands it. So there's an ironic edge to this. Maybe if I tell you one more time, then you'll really believe, right? Wink, wink. Knowing there's no way that's going to happen. So he gets right to the heart of the issue. How do you pretend that you don't know what's going on? How do you pretend that you don't know who's responsible? But look at verse 29. This verse really gripped me. Not only do they say, we admit we won't give him credit, but they're proud of it. They're proud of the fact that they're in the dark. These are the ones who should have been able to discern his deity most clearly, but instead they say, we follow Moses. 
The Son of God is standing in front of them, but they will not hear his voice, and that is tragic. It's tragic. This is the picture of the religious heart that assumes that there is life even though the heart is cold in the center. The best illustration I can think of, and I don't mean to be flippant, is if you've ever seen a piece of seared ahi tuna. And on the outside, it's all charred and done. And you cut it open, and the center is cold. To me, that's disgusting. But that's the religious heart. It looks right on the outside, but when you go into the inner, inner middle of it, there's nothing but coldness. Nothing of faith. There's nothing of surrender. There's nothing of seeing life through the heart of God. Instead of confident trust, there's fear. Instead of a secure assurance, there's doubt. Instead of humble yieldedness, there's self-sufficiency. And like the Pharisees, it's seeing the facts, but still finding a way to explain it as something else. So the man makes a bold statement. I don't know what you guys are looking at, but I'm telling you, I used to be blind, and now I can see. And everybody else sees it. Why can't you? Then he gets even more bold in verse 30. I'm almost done. He says, it's amazing that you don't know where he came from or what he's done. How exactly do you guys want to explain this? Now, I know I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I believe this is what's in the text. Guys, you of all people should have seen this. You should know what he is. And what's amazing to me is you don't. And what's amazing to me is that you are rejecting him. Now, if he didn't do it, if he's not the son of God, then how exactly do you want to explain this? And notice the response. It's not repentance. It's how dare you lecture us. We are educated. Who do you think you are? You just got healed of blindness. You're going to preach to us? And they're just making a mockery of themselves because everybody can see what's going on. Now, what do we do with this? I need to be done. Let me give you three very simple spiritual principles of what the Spirit, I believe, wants us to understand about himself and about us. And I want you to just take these and kind of sit on them. I'm not going to explain them in any kind of depth. I'm just going to give them to you and we're going to pray. But I want you to really ask the Holy Spirit and seek him this week. Lord, what does this mean for me? First spiritual principle is there are times when the Lord allows difficulty simply to remind us that he's Lord. There are times when the Lord allows difficulty simply to remind us that he is Lord and he alone is worthy of our praise and our trust. Some of you are going through those times right now. Some of you are going through difficulty. Some of you are going through hardships. Some of you are going through trials. I think there's increased spiritual warfare lately for us as a church. Those problems are designed to refine our faith. So listen to the words of Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I've taken refuge. 
Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You're my confidence in my youth. I become a marvel to many, for you're my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. As for me, I'm going to hope continually and will praise you more and more. And my mouth will tell of your righteousness and your salvation all day long, for I don't know the sum of them. The response of faith is what the choir has sung before. I never lost my hope. I never lost my joy. I never lost my faith. And most of all, I never lost my praise. No matter what's going on, we must never lose our praise. That leads to the second thought, verse 25. There are only two ways of seeing things. Fear, doubt, self-sufficiency. Or confidence, faith, and submission. There are only two ways of seeing things. Fear, doubt, and self-sufficiency, or faith, confidence, and submission to the Spirit. Now, immediately, our mind is arguing, and the devil is pushing it, that there has to be a middle ground. There has to be a gray area. There has to be a negotiable space that allows for circumstances and emotion. But when we look at the reactions of the Pharisees and the blind man, we see how cut and dry it really is. Either we are asking with doubt how, why, and what, or we're looking at the Lord and what he does and saying, I can't explain it, but I was blind and now I can see. I want to say this morning, there is no middle ground to that. There's no place where we can just kind of balance both. Well, sometimes I need to doubt and sometimes I need to trust, kind of based on the circumstances, how I'm feeling, what's going on in my life, who's around me. Uh, you know, the weather. But no, 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 no. You walk by faith and not by sight. You either trust or you don't. Another hymn came into my mind last night as I was finishing studying. Listen to the words. What a wonderful change has been wrought in my life since Jesus came into my heart. How many know this, this song? Two of you. That's lovely. I have light in my soul for which long I have sought since Jesus came into my heart. I've ceased from my wandering and going astray since Jesus came into my heart. And my sins, which were many, are all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy over my soul just like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. What else this week can you say that about? When was the last time floods of joy swept over your soul from something that was not connected to the Lord's work in your life? Is your soul joyful today? Are you full of the Lord? As much as it sounds like a dichotomy, we are only consumed with joy when we're fully submitted. When there's less of self, there's more joy. And lack of joy indicates a lack of yielding. So trust him or don't. God continually says, make up your mind. Choose who you're going to serve. Last thought and I'm done. There's a huge difference between how the Lord responds to proud people and how he responds to and revives humble, broken people. 
There's a huge difference between how God responds to proud people and how he responds to and revives humble, broken people. I have a hand up for you as you go out the door today if you want to grab one, maybe one per family. I think we have enough. That draws the distinction between how God works with proud people and how God works with broken people. But it can all be summed up in one phrase. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We have no indication from the Holy Spirit before verse 1 that this man was humble. What we do know is that when his eyes were opened, his humility was revealed. And what a contrast to the Pharisees who stood there with their arms crossed and said, we will not believe. Now, I don't really have a conclusion. The conclusion is, I guess, where's your heart this morning? Are you leaning more toward pride and resistance and disbelief? Or every day are you reveling the change that he has brought in our heart since Jesus came into our heart? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. There's been so much here. And I pray that your Holy Spirit has spoken to each of our hearts, convicted us of what is not surrendered and what is not broken before you. And Father, that you've also revealed to us the incredible power of your grace and the joy of knowing you and the joy of trusting you. Lord, the enemy and ourself constantly says, you don't want to trust. You don't want to yield. That's not good for you. But Lord, we know it is. We know that you are good and we know that you're faithful and we know that you have done right by us when we deserve nothing. So, Lord, even though this is a simple message and one we've talked about many times before, I pray this morning that our hearts would be stoked with a new desire for you, a new willingness to trust you, put our lives in your hands. You will never fail us. Father, I pray right now you'd help those that are struggling against this. There are some in this room right now that are struggling against this, that are pushing back against this word that you've given to us. Soften their heart right now. Father, break through to them. We'll give you all the praise and the glory. You're the only one that deserves it. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name.